Well, good morning from Stad. You're listening to a very special edition of Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley. We're at the World of Words Festival here in Stad. Uh, over the next 60 minutes, uh, Georgina Godwin, uh, of course, is here, as you just heard. Uh, also, Louise Doughty, uh, who's, um, of course, uh, in the mountains. Uh, she's going to be sharing a little bit of what are the weekend's headlines, also talking about uh, what it's like uh, having a bit of a retreat moment. But Georgina, you first. Uh, why are we here? Well, as you say, uh, World of Words, or wow, and it certainly is wow. Wow from the location, wow because of the guests well because of the socializing it's been absolutely extraordinary it's only the second time that this festival has been held and it's going incredibly well and it's been so much fun yes you can hear that uh, Georgina is very charged about uh, also very happy to say uh, that the designer Tara Bernard is here local resident very dear friend of the Monocle family uh, and also a little bit later in the program author Elliot Ackerman is going to be joining us for a very special discussion uh, which will extend also a little bit later as well but it's the 26th of June 2022 live this is Monocle on Sunday. So, good morning, uh, Georgina. Very, very uh, nice to, to have you here. A lot to get across uh, over the next uh, hour or so, or at this point, 55 uh, minutes uh, in, in the program. Um, I just wanted to start, maybe let's, let's frame where we are, because uh, this is the World of Words Festival, as you were just saying. Um, this is uh, edition number two. But this is your beat. You are, of course, the presenter uh, of Meet the Writers. Uh, you are our, our in-house uh, editor when it comes to all things books related. Uh, so as the circuit goes, uh, when it comes to book festivals, book summits, um, where does it sort of sit? And, and what do you think is trying to be achieved here, which might be different from Hay or, or maybe more established at festivals as well? It certainly is different. And I think what uh, Thomas Gomez, who is the founder of this, has set out to do is to have a conversation. He's more looking towards something like Sundance rather than Hay. So he's talking about getting all these wonderful minds together to have a symposium, to have a conversation. It's a little bit more interactive to have all, all the writers and the audience talking to themselves, whereas a, a kind of traditional literary festival, it's kind of session after session, and there's a, pretty much a divide between writers and audience. This is about bringing everyone together and, and just taking the dialogue forward. And of course, what's incredibly special about it is the location. Yeah, so we have to say that we're, uh, we're in the Salle Baccarat uh, here at the Stad Palace, of course, one of the most iconic hotels uh, in the Alps, and it just couldn't be a better setting. But I guess what's also interesting here, you know, we, we're having a session um, in, in this uh, environment right now, but you were on stage last night in probably one of the finest also little cinemas, uh, I think, in the Alps uh, as well. It's a real modernist 60s gem, uh, and you were interviewing Martin Suter last night. It was extraordinary. I mean, he, as our listeners probably know, is probably the most prominent uh, Swiss contemporary writer, and what he's doing is something quite extraordinary. He's taking writing off the page and onto the screen, but in a way that we haven't seen done before. He's uh, designed this entire website where you you can not only catch up with his archive work, but you can also pay for bonus content. So you can have, you can read alternative endings to his books. You can hear what, what his characters have done in between the books. You can hear his music. You can hear all sorts of things. And I just found it so interesting that he's taking this all a step on without losing the joy of the written word. Indeed. Uh, also, it seems that there's not um, just, of course, the core audience who are here to uh, you know watch and listen and, and participate. There are also other writers uh, up in the mountains as well, or at least in the neighborhood. And you had a bit of a serendipitous uh, moment with someone who's uh, alongside us uh, now. How did, how did this come about? Absolutely. Well, I invited Louise Doughty to a party at my house a couple of weeks ago. And she said, oh, I can't because I'm at a writer's retreat in uh, just off Lake Geneva. And I said, oh, that's odd. I'm going to be in the area in a couple of weeks' time. And she said, oh, well, you know, I'll probably be back in London by then or whatever. And then it turned out that, no, she was still here. She was free. And so she's joined us now. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here and I've never been to Gestad before and gosh it is beautiful isn't it? It really is and I think Louise we should just tell the audience a little bit about you because uh, British uh, British television watchers will certainly know you through Apple Tree Yard which was a huge hit on, on British television adapted from your novel. Uh, Platform 7 your latest book which is a wonderful ghost story told from the perspective of the dead person uh, but you are writing a lot of TV and film scripts, uh, you've done uh, radio plays, you've done all 
sorts, I mean, extremely well-known in Britain. I know it's unfair, but how would you sum up your career? Oh, that's really unfair. That's terrible. Um, I think, I mean, I'm primarily a novelist, but the wonderful world of television has come knocking since Apple Tree Yard. And um, they, they basically said, come over to the dark side, we have cookies. And they really do. They have a lot of cookies. <laughs> so I've just written my first original uh, series for TV. It's a three-part drama that will be on BBC One in the autumn, starring Keely Hawes. And I'm now in that tricky thing of balancing uh, the two careers. I was so interested to hear Martin talk last night about setting up the website, and I didn't have time to ask, like, where does he get the time? Because, you know, once you write novels, novels are all consuming. Novels eat you alive. Mm. And finding time for anything else is incredibly difficult. But yes, at the moment, I have at least two careers. Okay, Louise, <laughs> I just want to jump up to uh, the, the hills above uh, Lac Lamain, uh, uh, Lake Geneva, uh, and maybe tell us a little bit about what happens at a Swiss alpine, well, semi-alpine anyway, writer's retreat as well. Well, the first thing that happens is you can't get any work done at all for the first few days because you just sit in the terraced rose garden and stare at the view and cannot believe your own luck. <laughs> After that, you have to knuckle down. So Chateau Lavigny, where I'm staying, it was owned by a very famous French, um, sorry, a very famous German publisher. When his widow died, she uh, donated it to be a writer's retreat. And they now have five writers at a time, come for four weeks. And we all, I'm sleeping in the room that Nabokov used to sleep in uh, when he visited. So obviously that's very pleasing, hoping some of it will kind of seep in by osmosis. And you write all day. And then at around seven o'clock in the evening, you gather on the terrace for an apéro, and then the house chef serves dinner and it's absolutely wonderful it's almost like the kind of film director's idea of a writer's life as opposed to the actual reality of a writer's life which is normally a lot less glamorous what are you writing while you're there i'm working on a new novel um it's actually an old novel it's been going on for several years because tv interrupted it's due for delivery in september uh you can see the fear in my eyes if you get close to me i'm really panic-stricken. What's really interesting about it, though, I think, because of what's happening later on in the programme, is Elliot Ackerman is going to join us. Of course, he is the prominent US writer, and I believe there are certain uh, parallels between his work and yours. Yes, I mean, this, this one is basically it's a spy novel, and it's about a woman spy in the UK who goes on the run. Um, but I've always been very interested in the kind of crossover between uh, corporate and private security and national spies and in fact my eighth novel Blackwater which was about political violence in Indonesia had a company that operated in that slightly grey area between the two and I think I'm one of the few women writers who's actually genuinely interested in spies. So the TV series has guns and helicopters. You know people always expect women to write small-scale domestic stories um, and I'm certainly not doing that and I'm, I'm not doing it with the new novel either. I think it's safe to say there's always someone dies in one of my books and this definitely somebody going to die in this one. In, indeed. Uh, we, were, we were catching up on a little bit. You, you also have a little bit of research uh, to do as well. Research tours, it sounds like you're heading uh, to points sort of North Atlantic and, uh, and maybe then a little bit westbound as well. Absolutely. I mean, I sometimes think that my entire career is just one big excuse. It's just an excuse <laughs> to go on the run. This scene set in Norway and Iceland. I disappeared up to Scotland for a couple of weeks with a backpack, travelling on my own, going from one small B&B &B to another um, all to, to research the novel and it's one of the great privileges of being the writer I love research. Martha Gellhorn said being a writer is a great excuse for going out and finding out about things and that's the way I feel about being a writer as well. Well on the topic of finding out about things of course uh, this is normally the point of the program where we look at uh, what is making news headlines. You just talked about Norway just now uh, and, and of course we've seen a rapidly evolving story over the last 36 hours uh, after this gun attack uh, in, in Oslo you talk a lot about and, and just you were just setting us up a little bit, Louise, for this notion of security services. Here we've had an attack in Oslo. And again, we've heard that the security services knew exactly who this attacker was. Uh, they talk about mental illness, etc. What does this mean when people sort of flip open their papers right now and they see that, again, you know, here you have these, these, these apparatuses which we're paying for, and they're on the back foot uh, yet again. How does, how does this 
play out, especially given maybe the knowledge that you've had also chronicling what the security services are doing? It's an extremely difficult one because this happens time and time again after an attack like this. We find out that the person was already on the radar of the security services. They quite often have a history of petty crime, extremely common to have a history of domestic abuse. I mean, that seems to me to be an enormous red flag. Surprise, surprise, uh, bad people do bad things elsewhere as well as in their own home. But then what is the alternative? I mean, we, we, we can't suddenly start imprisoning, you know, huge numbers of petty criminals who appear to have some dodgy ideology. Um, there is always going to be this great groundswell of people who and occasionally one is, is going to pop up and do something truly terrible, uh, like this homophobic attack in Oslo. I don't actually know what the alternative is. And I certainly know that when I've spoken to people in the security services, they do sometimes feel a little resentful because obviously the attacks they fail to stop are the ones that make the headlines but they say you have no idea the public has no idea the well, media has no idea for every one that happens like this there's another 30 that we did actually succeed in stopping uh, which of course can never make the press absolutely i mean that that is quite a horrific stat isn't it but tyler this this particular attack in norway uh, has has been truly shocking it also meant of course that norway's pride marches were all cancelled it's a huge blow to the lgbt community well and also as well you saw that they, they talked about this being an isolated attack but then also norway and the norway security service have also stepped up again to the highest possible level of another potential attack. So it's just, again, it's, it's a bit of an odd contradiction. We're trying to make everyone feel very comfortable uh, that this is potentially a lone wolf and, 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 and with his specific ideologies. Uh, but then also then you, of course, put the whole country um, on, on alert. Uh, Louise, what, should we just uh, move over just too quickly, maybe two other stories that, uh, that you had for yeah. us as well? Well, of course, all the international newspapers are covering Roe versus Wade in the United States. Um, the New York Times has America's face new abortion landscape in the wake of Roe decision. The talk about how many, many people will be crossing state boundaries because, of course, there's now going to be chaos. What in the UK we call a postcode lottery, but the chaos of healthcare provided depended on where you live, which is obviously going to be deeply, deeply serious. Um, in the UK, the big story is Prime Minister Johnson reckons he's going for a third term. People have called him delusional. Um, it's just a miracle that it's taken them that long to apply that adjective to Boris Johnson, but there we go. Um, on a lighter note, I rather enjoyed the revelation that Prince Charles has received three million euros from a Qatari politician um, in cash. Uh, for one of his charities, we have to say, not for Prince Charles's beer fund. Um, and uh, he got it in suitcases and also in a Fortnum and Mason carrier bag. And I love that detail because it was never going to be a Tesco's bag, was no. it? It wasn't even going to be a Marks and Spencer's bag. It's Prince Charles. It was going to be a Fortnum no, and Mason carrier bag. That's good reporting bag. and good detail because it gives it a whole other level of colour completely. Absolutely. And Fortnum and Mason, of course, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so just uh, before we go very quickly, this, uh, back down uh, to the, well, not, not too far, but uh, over the hills and back down to your patch of the country. And then how much longer uh, are you on this retreat? And I also had one more question. Could this just be an ongoing gig? Because how, how many retreats are there like this around the world? I mean, there are so many foundations, so many people who want to support the, of course, the arts and particularly literature as well. Could you just do one week, one week, one week? You know, if you got the applications right? If you could, there's a class of writers that we call colony hoppers who just go from one writer's colony to another. Um, what a nice life that would be. But no, sadly for most of them, you often have to apply a year in advance, 18 months but advance. Sometimes I, it's quite hard to get in as well. How about being writer in residence? residence here at this hotel. You could set a novel here, you could sit on the terrace, drinking your coffee, looking at the view and writing about everything that you see. I think that's a really good idea. The Savoy Hotel in London had a writer in residence. I really think it's time for the Gestad Palace. And obviously what they need is a British novelist who's in, who enjoys the view. And um, I think, yeah, maybe I should have a management on the way, a word with the management on the way out. That's if I'm not getting a Fortnum and Mason plastic bag from Monocle, of course. Indeed. Uh, we're going to go away for a very, very very short break. Very good to see you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by Heston's fifth-generation CEO, Jan Ride. He knows that sleep is key to finding balance and restoring our physical body. We are not human doings. We are human beings. 
We can have business goals or professional goals, but we need to make sure that we have that balance. For that, I mean, take care of our emotional well-being, take care of our health, take care of our spiritual well-being, because if we are going to be able to achieve higher levels of creations or abundance, it's so important that we are humble enough to understand we are spiritual beings in a physical body. Head to Hestons.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps the company's CEO Jan Ride and the world's creative and business leaders too. Hestons, be awake for the first time in your life. On 1021 here in Stade. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Blade. Georgina Godwin uh, is also uh, here. Kind of fascinating just listening to uh, Louise talk a little bit earlier uh, about just this, this notion of these retreats that these writers can go on. It's a, I mean, kind of an amazing job if you can get it. Absolutely. And I'm, I have to say, I've kind of tried to tailor my life on the coattails of that, if you like, by going to various book, book festivals all over the world. And of course, Monocle uh, organizes various things. And what I found fascinating in the news broadcast, was uh, this very high-level summit that's happening at Schloss Elmo, which, of course, was one of our venues last year. Absolutely. It was more than, more, more than last year. That oh, was, when was it? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a while ago now, but, but indeed, uh, incredible that, of course, so the G7 is up uh, in Schloss Elmo, one of the other great Alpine uh, hotels, and it gives us a bit of a bridge to talk about the world of, of hospitality and design, and as I said at the top of the program, I'm very happy to say that Tara Bernard uh, is, is here. Good morning, Tara. Very, very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. I'm wonderful to be here with you. So I, I wanted to start. We, uh, we were having an interesting conversation uh, yesterday evening um, about your designer. Uh, you're working with some of the world's major hotel brands, new builds, uh, also grand renovations as well. We're in the middle of a summer, at the start of a summer right now, Tara, where we see a lot of the wheels coming off the world of travel, uh, whether it's at airports, whether there's not enough staff. So I want to ask you, can, can design save this? Can design somehow sort of help these problems that the industry has at the moment? You said this would be an easy chat. <laughs> um, absolutely a casualty of travel at the moment. I just about got here, back here on Friday. I think at the moment... It's a very hard call. I think design can ease it by arrival and feeling that sense of seduction and what everyone looks for when traveling to a destination and for a holiday is that sense of escape. I can't guarantee that at Terminal 2 in a huge queue. I mean, Georgina, I'm going to probably ask about your, your journey to get here as well. But Tara, just you know, on that right now, because... Oftentimes, you, you have these owners, and they've got grand visions about you know, working with the, with the right designer, the right architects, et, et cetera. But you know, we're talking about a business which is about service as yes. well. And we, you know, we see there's a service crisis. There's, you know, there's, there's an employment crisis, seemingly, all over the world at the moment. Oftentimes, and this is maybe good for you, but is there almost too much focus on what the lighting is going to be and the carpets and the amount of money that's going to be spent on chairs and maybe not enough consideration when it comes to actually staff having the right GM, having the right major domo in the dining room? Well, I've always felt very importantly that it's not only about design. Design obviously plays a key role, but it's coming together. It's a whole team effort. It's almost, we're talking about books, we're here for the WOW Festival, where we create our stories, and it is the theatre. The hotel will open gracefully in the morning, we will have our coffees, and by evening we'll dim the lights, and the theatre for the evening begins. Take your cocktail of choice, and it is all about the people. Mm. It is all about the personalities that are here. Some hotels, such as the Palace, where we are, are institutions, and it is way beyond the design. It's about the head waiters, the concierge, everyone who we know for decades. And they are the personality of the narrative that we go into when mm. we go to a hotel. So I think looking after people working in hotels is of 
the utmost importance. Absolutely. I mean, just to carry on with that book metaphor, you are what you're looking at is this narrative arc, uh, and you need it to move seamlessly from, uh, from journey to arrival to, to your whole hotel experience. And as you say, that's about all these little interlinking pieces that go to make it a, a seamless experience. Well, everyone asks me, where do you prefer to stay, be it when I'm traveling to Hong Kong or I'm in Milan, and without name-dropping, I would say this, it is often the people who are working in a hotel that will drive me to stay there. The service, the relationships that are built over years, way above and beyond the design, mm. which is extraordinary. Although if the, if the design is bad, of course, then that's when it starts to feel very uncomfortable. One, one is looking for a good balance. And I just, on that, I just wondered about um, acoustic design, because I've often been in a restaurant, for instance, where it's absolutely beautifully done, but all the walls are hard surfaces, and so what you get is this horrible sound bouncing off. You can't hear anyone around the table, uh, and I think that that, for me, is a really important element of design, and I wonder how much that features in your working life? Well, it does, and it starts from day one, and it needs to be considered, and those are by either having installations behind hard surfaces or consideration to the materiality of that room. And I do think it can be... Well, it is a game-changer. You can create something, again, beautiful. You've now got the perfect staff, but if you can't hear yourself speak... That, that is problematic, and it's something that we pay huge attention to at the outset of any project. Tara, I'm, I'm curious, when you get a brief for a new project, you know, oftentimes you know, people say that the client is so much better armed today um, because they can go on to Pinterest and they can you know, pull a thousand images from Instagram. And, but at the same time, it also creates a bit of a problem because we see a lot of spaces which almost look identical all over the world. They're not right, they're not appropriate for the setting, uh, and yet you sort of find kind of you know, velvet banquettes in Ibiza, but they really have nothing to do with being there. Is that a challenge for you right now that, that you almost have yeah, clients who are too prescriptive? This is what we want, but knowing that, of course, the buildings, I mean, the hotels are going to be finished for three years. That's a very interesting question. I like what Louise said earlier in the show about osmosis. Design, and I think the very best design, is almost invisible. We don't quite realize, but we are seduced by a space. For me, when we approach a project, I like to be more indigenous. I like to do something that is relevant to where we are. We're in an extraordinary place where we see the mountain range, this epic landscape, and everything is the wooden chalet. It is inappropriate sometimes to use materials where they don't fit. And likewise, I wouldn't really want to be designing a chalet theme in the heart of New York or downtown Osaka. So I think today, yes, you can grasp anything from a Pinterest, but I think editing is terribly important. I think having a DNA, a narrative from the outset, is key for any project. Are you surprised that, that there's been this almost evaporation of sense of place? I mean, you know, it's... So often you travel somewhere, you think, actually, am I in Houston right now? Am I, am I in Hong Kong? Uh, because oftentimes there's such a disconnect uh, as well. You know, a lot of, not you, but a lot of big firms work remotely. They never even go to the property sometimes, which seems like such a, yeah, in a way, a, a tragedy, but also because you're talking about seduction and it's very hard to do that if something is, you're, you're almost, uh, I mean, totally removed from what that end experience is going to be of someone walking into the lobby, going to the bar, all of those things. I think um, perhaps also because we work five years ahead, I think there is a huge movement actually at the moment of people trying to establish a sense of place. I think increasingly, and maybe it's become because it differentiates brands, maybe it hasn't come from, you know, the real need to plant your foot into the land where you are has become increasingly relevant. Mm. Uh, Tar Bernard, uh, very, very good uh, to speak to you and uh, have a fantastic rest of summer. I'm sure we'll be catching up with you a little bit later. Uh, it's uh, just uh, coming up to the bottom of the hour at 10.30 here in Stad, 9.30 uh, back in London. Emma Nelson is there with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Missiles have struck the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. At least two residential buildings were hit. That's according to the city's mayor. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president has promised that Ukraine will win back all the cities it has lost to Russia. 
Russia, including Severodonetsk. The mayors of several European capitals, including Vienna, Berlin and Madrid, have been duped into holding video calls with a deep fake of their counterpart in Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is welcoming G7 leaders to a three-day summit in the Bavarian Alps. The summit at Schloss Elmau is overshadowed by the war in Ukraine and its far-reaching consequences from energy shortages to the food crisis. And a chaotic goat is being hailed as a hero of Kiev after it triggered a string of grenades laid by Russian troops. The goat is said to have triggered a tripwire as Russians pinned grenades around the edge of a local hospital. The animal, known as the goat of Kiev, headed straight for the booby trap with the Russian munitions exploding in a chain reaction, injuring dozens of soldiers who were waiting in ambush. There is no word on the condition of the goat. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler. Emma, thank you uh, very much. Uh, back uh, in London, uh, just uh, I'm here with uh, Georgina Godwin, uh, of course, uh, your colleague uh, Emma uh, as well. Um, just um, we, we were sending you some pictures before we we went uh, on air, and of course, normally we're talking about the weather at the start of the program, and we didn't ask how is it in London this morning. It is. I, I am polite, so over the moon to say this because this is not normally what I tell you, is it, Tyler? It's a clear blue morning and we've had about three or four days of absolutely beautiful weather here in London. It has been a wonderful time here in the capital because uh, British summertime, the enormous gig, has arrived in Hyde Park. So the city is full of people traipsing down to go and see Elton John, traipsing down to go and see uh, the Rolling Stones. But what's quite nice is that it's not only looking beautiful, it's sounding beautiful as well. I mean, you can sit in the garden of Midori House and, and listen to Elton John singing, I'm Still Standing. It's surreal, but fabulous. Wow. Georgina has sort of like looking, what am I missing? Are you feeling a bit of a trade-off between Stad or also being in London, Georgina? I'm very, very happy to be here. Although I do have to say, I watched a little bit of footage of uh, Paul McCartney at 80 singing uh, at Glastonbury last night, which was extraordinary. Joined on stage by Bruce Springsteen, and that looked extraordinary. And no rain for once at Glastonbury. So. No, exactly. Uh, Emma Nelson, we'll catch up with you a little bit uh, later. Uh, we continue uh, here with a very special edition of uh, Monocle uh, on Sunday for our our listeners uh, around the world. We're at the Palace Hotel in Stad. Uh, it is the uh, it's the World of uh, Words uh, event. And uh, Georgina, maybe just uh, for, for everyone joining us uh, here as well, just, just uh, again, set up this festival. Why is this a summit of a different kind? So this is, as you say, the key word there is summit, because this is about interaction. And I think that Thomas Gomez, when he first set this up, has, has really, really thought about it and thought about what he wants writers and members of the audience to take from it. And I think that's about interaction, it's about exchange of ideas, it's more than just having an event and having an audience watch that event, it's about everybody coming together and from out of that something new being created and I think that's very much what's happening here. It feels very dynamic and as if, as if there are ideas sparking off it, it's, it's very, very energising. Mm, indeed, um, and this is a, a special edition of course of Monocle on Sunday. We're in there, the Salle Bacaha uh, here uh, at the Palace, uh, we have a live audience uh, now as well. And we're going to take a, a little bit of a, of a shift uh, as well um, with, uh, with our, our pace and uh, tone of, of the program. So Georgina, you can see I've got a very well-worn book uh, here. Uh, I've got a copy of 2034, uh, which is uh, Elliot Ackerman's book, uh, also uh, delivered uh, with Admiral uh, James Stavridis as well. Um, and this book really has a few miles on it. Um, I've got a Penguin edition. Um, it has completely fallen apart uh, because, as we know, uh, this is the, the summer season. And books, you know, despite all the technology that is out there, if you don't want to read something off a tablet, uh, glue sometimes just does not work very well. Oh, I, it looks like you have taken that to an actual war zone. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's been to Japan. It's been all over the place. Uh, and I'm very happy to say that uh, Elliot Ackerman uh, is, is here and uh, maybe a warm uh, round of applause. Very good to see you. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, just for everyone's uh, benefit, we're going to chat uh, for the next sort of uh, 25 minutes or so uh, because, of course, we're in a live program. And uh, when we go off air, the conversation will continue for another 30 minutes. And I think we'd really like to turn this into a bit of a Q&A uh, and, and a dialogue um, as well. But I, I want to start. Um, I, I picked this book up. I, had, I saw there was no sort of advanced publicity. Um, I was in uh, Galignani. I think one of the best bookstores uh, in the world uh, on the Rue de Rivoli in Paris. And it just, the, sort of the cover just sort of caught my attention. I was looking for something to read on the TGV. And uh, I just, I found it 
and, and we're sort of, I'm recommending to everybody, it's an absolutely extraordinary book. Just tell us about the starting point, the evolution, because it's chilling to read right now because the parallels of, of course, what you talk about in this book, they're kind of living on CNN when we, when we flip it on. But to maybe just tell us about the start of it. Well, I think one of the things that's been interesting about writing the book was, you know, the, we began this project well before uh, the pandemic. So, you know, the, the world kind of came up to pace with many of the situations we were imagining the book. But the spirit of the book, uh, which, as you mentioned, was uh, written with Jim Stavridis, who's a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, which was, you know, Eisenhower's job. Um, was that you know if we if you believe the idea that the West and China are in a Cold War or at least in the foothills of a Cold War, when you look back at the last Cold War between uh, NATO and the Soviet Union, one of the things that existed was this like very rich body of literature imagining what a hot war uh, would look like. Everything from uh, films like you know Doctor Strange Love to uh, books like On the Beach or uh, maybe I'll date myself, movies like Red Dawn, a favorite of mine, you know, we'd really imagined how horrible that would be. And during the Cold War, as much as the Soviet Union and the West disagreed about everything, the one thing that there was consensus on was that neither side wanted to fight that war, that everybody would lose. But when we looked at sort of where the West's relationship was with China, you know, none of that imaginative work was being done. Uh, and I think there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, so the idea was, you know, let's, let's write a book that kind of imagines what a, uh, a war between China and the United States would look like. And because I'm a former Marine Corps officer and the Admiral's a former Navy officer, much of it takes place at sea. I was gonna say, and, and it, it takes place at sea uh, with the most, not casual uh, incident, uh, because there are, of course, issues of territoriality um, and, and free passage in the South China Sea. And that's you know, really how the, the book opens up. But it is, it's a very sort of simple mistake, um, which, of course, leads to something quite catastrophic without um, giving it away. Given your, of course, time um, in, in sort of various battle theaters, also the Admiral as well, can it sort of trigger that simply, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, listen, there's, I mean, the, the book, I think very much is, you know, there were a lot of touchstones we had for this book. I mentioned a few, but like one is this book by Barbara Tuchman called The Guns of August, you know, which is really gets into August of 1914 and how the entire world slept, walked into the First World War. And, you know, we can look back at the First World War with a sense of maybe inevitability right now, but there are a whole host of reasons and books that came out before the First World War talking about, well, this could never happen. You know, all of the European countries are too economically intertwined. Maybe that sounds familiar. Or, you know, all of the royal families are intermarried. This could never happen. This could never happen. Um, and what we wanted to show is, you know, we're not saying that this will happen. We're saying, well, this is sort of how it could happen. And the way it happens really is through just a few and miscalculations, a series of miscalculations. And when you think about it, baked into every single war is at least one miscalculation, the most fundamental of which is both sides believe they will win the war. So obviously someone has miscalculated. Indeed. And it's interesting, the, the other sort of geopolitical players, you talk about, of course, the, the US component, the China component, but then also we have other, of course, actors who you might expect in the mix as well, with Iran, uh, of course, and also India uh, playing a, 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 not just a curious role. Well, it does strike you almost as curious as how India then appears in this. Um, and part of it also has to do with, you know, uh, someone's ethnic heritage in Washington and how that gets you back to, to New Delhi um, as well. Again, without sort of not wanting to give it away, was that, was that clear uh, when you set out to do this, that those would be the other actors alongside the U.S. Uh, and China, or, or were there other, other contenders maybe who could have played those roles? Well, and, and I want to, um, you know, part of it too was, uh, was, was functional as a novelist in that, you know, we wanted to have a book. And I think if you pick up 2034, you'll find it. Like, it's not a huge doorstopper. We didn't have an ambition to write a thousand page book. You know, it's about 300 pages. We didn't want some book that has this cast where you're constantly referencing a glossary of who's who in the book. The book is told from the perspective of five characters, and I think it moves relatively quickly. But we also knew we needed to tell a war that was on a global scale. So in terms of, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, Sandeep Chowdhury, who works in the national security staff, and he is of an Indian American heritage. Part of that was, I think, you know, it's interesting to have someone of split heritage. That is the reality for so many Americans. Um, but also, we need to figure out how to get the story to India. So we need a character who was uh, of Indian descent. So, so that was part of it as well. But there is also, as you begin a project like this, you know that there are themes 
that are going to be in the book. Um, and obviously the role of the United States is a theme in the book. And if we look back at the 20th century, for instance, I think we could say that the 20th century, or at least the second half of the 20th century, you know, was an American century. Um, and if we look at that American century, it was forged in two fires, the First and the Second World War. And those were wars that the United States did not start but the United States finished those wars and was the beneficiary of how those wars finished. So it poses this larger question of who would be the beneficiary of a war with China? And I'll just end by saying, you know, the book, the prospect of the book is that it's a war between the United States and China. So as a reader coming into this, you feel like, well, someone's going to win, right? The United States or China. Uh, I would just say that neither side wins and someone else actually is the beneficiary of the war. You were talking about the various characters in the book, and I noticed that uh, one of your main protagonists is a woman, uh, mm -hmm. Sarah Hunt. T tell us about that decision. Why, as two men writing this book, did you decide to, to, to focus on this woman? How easy was it to get into to the mindset? You know, it actually wasn't a, a huge hand-wringing. The, the reality in the U.S. military right now is there are many, many, many women. You know, I have many of my comrades that I served with uh, are women to include in, uh, in certain parts of special operations. Uh, and so, and particularly for the Admiral in the United States Navy, there are, you know, up to four star rank, there are women. Um, so I think we obviously wanted to balance between men and women. Um, it just made sense that she would be a woman, I feel very intuitive that she would be a woman, I think. And as the book progresses, you see her role, she kind of finds herself uh, in a couple key moments making very big decisions uh, and she sort of evolves as I think the conscience of the book more than any other character. One of the intriguing things we're, we're sitting we're having this conversation uh, in the heart of Switzerland the heart of Europe. Europe is quite absent uh, in this book which is there, there is a, a, a hot scene which happens and, and a scene in many ways which is absolutely in sync with where the world is and it's it's around Kaliningrad um, and so we know that this of course is a story very much in the news um, at the moment on your part as well was this a little bit of a yeah this moment and maybe a bit of an alarm clock as well that um, you talk about sleepwalking into things as well and we're, we know where we stand of course with the Ukraine conflict but you know when you started this book was that sort of the, the prevailing view as well that Europe needed to, to step up well, I think the absence of Europe in the book is really reflects the idea of, you know, what would it look like if the United States tried to go to war without its partners? Uh, and you can see that the absence has profound consequences for the United States. And as we look, for instance, at China right now, and if you can imagine a war with China that began in the South China Sea, the one advantage that the West has is we do have these partners and we've seen the role that Ukraine, uh, that NATO is playing in Ukraine and how profound that is, and thank God NATO has held together. And if we look east, you know, to, to Taiwan, um, you know, would, our, would the West partners in the South Pacific hold together as well as NATO has held together? And that, and that is a question. But the one advantage we would have over China is if China goes to war with the West, I mean, who are, who are China's great, great partners? I don't think they have the same level of deep relationships that, uh, that the West has enjoyed for a long time. I mean, do you think that, the, that NATO and, and the West's reaction towards Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine has, has taken on the, the, the dimensions it has as a warning to China, saying, make a move on Taiwan and this is what's going to happen to you? Yes, um, yes, I do. But I also think it's worth, like, you know, we're sitting here and it's, what, uh, almost July. Like, what a, what a year we have lived and what a profound year uh, NATO has been through. I mean, less than a year ago, we saw the collapse of Afghanistan. And so if we're talking about sort of the journey NATO has taken, you know, that was a moment of abject failure for the alliance. It was a completely humiliating moment for the United States. It was also a moment where the United States didn't exit in in full partnership with the rest of the NATO countries who you know, fought alongside the US for two decades. And so if you're Vladimir Putin or you're Xi and you're watching and you're questioning, hmm, I wonder how the alliance would hold up if I did something aggressive in my backyard, I would say September or October of 2021, you'd be feeling pretty confident that the alliance, they're not gonna really mm. be able to do anything. And so I think that the alliance has overperformed since the invasion of Ukraine, you know, the, the question becomes, you know, we do not have as formal of alliance in the South Pacific. So if she were to do something, you know, would the kind of confederation of, you know, the South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, would you see them cohere in the same way that we've seen NATO cohere? And I think that's to be determined. And it means interesting you've written this also then in parallel 
with the rise of AUKUS and everything we have seen in, mm -hmm. in the APAC region as well. Uh, maybe just, I don't want to give anything away in the book, but you know, one of the really, I guess, to really sort of set the scene after there's an incident, of course, uh, in the South China Sea, the response um, is thwarted because of, of, of a, a cyber attack. Um, it's chilling because we hear about cyber attacks all the time. You think, well, is the ATM going to work or whatever? This is on a much larger, grander scale. Does that type of technology exist, or was, how much of that was, um, you know, boys' bedroom fantasies as well? Um, I don't know about bedroom fantasies. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, we don't, don't want to get into bedroom fantasies. Bedroom it's, fantasy. it's, 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 it's a family program. But trust me, it's but. a fun book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, yes, some of that capability exists. You know, the, the, large, the larger idea of kind of what, how cyber works in the book, and, and we've just seen this in Ukraine, is, you know, this perception, right, of Russian invincibility that, you know, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And we all have, you know, I think, cultivated over decades that, you know, Russia is this massive military. They can do whatever they want and act with impunity against a small neighbor like Ukraine. And we have seen this massive underperformance of the Russian military. And, you know, we can, it's a separate conversation, why do they underperform? But I think it is also, as we look at the West and we look at the United States military, and as, you know, Jim and I were thinking about that, we're like, you know, would the U.S. military perform as well as we think it might? Like, do, do we possess this, this superiority that we've walked around presuming we have for generations? Is an aircraft carrier still the, the token of the realm when it comes to naval warfare? And, you know, the book kind of says, no, not, not as much as you might think. And so we're seeing this happen in real time in the Ukraine. And I think that as much as everyone is cheering this Russian underperformance, we should also be sort of pausing and saying, does that presage the potential of Western underperformance in the South Pacific? Uh, and is it also about leadership? Because, I mean, we've seen, we look to the U.S. As, as the leader of kind of liberal democracies of the world. But, of course, since 2016, that's begun to fracture since the advent of Trump. Is, is the U.S. still positioned as, as a global leader here, or are we seeing those political powers fading? How relevant is America? It's a prof I think it's a profound question. I think... Um, you'll forgive me, we're doing this on radio, but I'm gonna do a, a gesture, is one, I've always, one of the great things about the United States is the United States, it's like you have jazz hands going. And what I mean by that is everyone's going in their own way, everyone's arguing about everything, no one can agree on anything, but there's this sort of incredible diversity of what people can do, what they're capable of, we're always going like this. And then there will be these existential moments that occur where we go from jazz hands to two fists. And the United States, as dysfunctional as we seem, has in the past always sort of been able at the appropriate moment to make the two fists. Um, but if we can't do that and you go into a fight with jazz hands, you're gonna get punched in the nose. So will the US cohere? I don't know. Have we done it in the past? Yes, we have. I hope we can do it again. The one thing that um, just on a personal level, I found sort of uh, relieving was the, you know, this blink after Ukraine a month or two where it seemed as, you know, there was real bipartisan support. All Americans sort of generally understood when Russia invades a European country, we as Americans all think it's not okay. And you saw that across the aisle. But obviously one of the things the United States is not good on historically is staying focused and our attention span. So we'll, we'll have to see. And those two fists are going against each other. And, and right? they're going against the other right now. So it's, so yes, I think, I think American, American internal dysfunction can often come, you know, cause the world to doubt our ability to lead. But again, I mean, even going up into the second world war, um, which is, you know, if we look at the, the height of American leadership, you know, there was a huge dissent inside America, whether or not we should be isolationist and sit on the fence or not. I mean, obviously Pearl Harbor uh, focused everybody's thoughts. So, so, but I think that is also TBD. Uh, it's interesting. One part of the, the book, there is um, maybe a, another sort of commentary that's happening, Elliot, which is this pivot that occurs to the world of, of analog. Um, and, and there is uh, something that happens in the book where you have aircraft uh, which are yeah, stripped of all of their technological wizardry, all of their digital wizardry, um, and really goes back to a time of, yes, they're jets, but these could be Mustangs or anything else in the air. Is, that also, is, is there a sense as well that, yeah, that the battlefield is even too wired now? Um, and was that something that you've seen that maybe we need to get back to the knitting of, um, we talk about just boots on the ground, we talked about the importance of, of human intelligence in, in conflict, etc. Was that, is that why that appeared? Because I, I found it very sort of striking. Um, and yeah, and it, it, of course, we, we know how important, uh, of course, cyber has been on one side. Uh, but then also, yeah, just looking at the images from the Ukraine as well, there's a lot of people who really sort of dug in and it's not incredibly advanced. 
No, and I think this is a story um, that is as old as war. So yes, the analog is coming back. You know, for instance, uh, uh, naval midshipmen now, uh, when they go to the Naval Academy in the United States, probably 10, 15 years ago, they weren't learning how to do celestial navigation because it was like, oh, well, you have your GPS. You don't need that anymore. They're learning how to do it again. Same thing with Marine officers. When I was a Marine officer, we had to learn how to navigate, do land navigation with a compass and a map. For several years, they didn't. They just do it with your GPS. Now they're teaching them people how to do it with a compass again because, you know, will satellites be taken out? So, you know, war is a story of, uh, you know, measure, countermeasure, measure, countermeasure. And I think the assumption is that the tech, you, you need to be able to fight it so the technology will not be there. And the wars we fought for the last 20 years have been asymmetric wars, but they've been wars in which we have had a massive technological advantage that we could rely. Um, I just want to maybe, and, and again, no, no spoilers, uh, you know, with, within any of this. Uh, as you said, there's, there's no victory in all. It's, this book comes to rather, um, I say flat ending because it's, um, that is the tone. You, you feel a world which has been defeated. Um, of course, some actors, of course, step up on the stage um, in, in a bigger way um, as well. Within all of this, I'm actually wondering what the response has been um, from, from China. I mean, the book has been out for a while as well. Uh, is it flying off the shelves? Uh, and let's maybe say the neighborhood in Taiwan. Uh, is it uh, what I find also in the bookshelves in, uh, in Hong Kong as well? Uh, you would find it on the bookshelves in Taiwan. You would not find it on the bookshelves um, in Hong Kong, um, though I know it's been read by uh, a number of you know, senior uh, folks uh, in the Chinese government. So I think, you know, they're I, thinking about this. Georgie, I was going to say that maybe we can we can send a special box shipment to the, to the monocle shop in in Wan Chai. Um, maybe maybe they won't be able to intercept it. Well, and and risk our staff being arrested. I think I I really wanted to talk about uh, the, the, your um, time in the military because you have a Purple Heart, and I wondered what that was for. Uh, I was I received that for uh, when I fought in Iraq. I fought in the Fallujah battle, um, and so Purple Heart is just a medal that you get if you're anyone who's wounded receives a Purple Heart, uh, mm -hmm. and so. Many, there are many guys who were much worse off than me who also received Purple Hearts, but I just took a little bit of a grenade in my back. So, I mean, people sitting here, many people here, will have never been in a war zone, will have no idea what that actually feels like. And, of course, both of you have had experience of that firsthand. I mean, Tyler, you, you were badly injured. Yeah, I was um, in, in Afghanistan in the mid-90s. Mid um, I'm actually, I don't usually wear a short sleeve shirt, but people can actually sort of see, um, uh, a, yeah, well, an entry and exit wound uh, yeah, that I experienced in, in the back of a vehicle in, in Kabul. And did that have any kind of life-changing shift for you? Did you change direction after that? Yeah, I just thought I want to live the rest of my life in Stad, um, in, sort of a, in sort of a perfectly sort of contained bubble where nothing's going to happen to you. No, of course. I mean, in, in many ways, you know, I was a journalist working freelance out in the field, and I think the manifestation of that was was it was very, very hard to get support because I was a freelancer. And so I thought, I'm just going to go and start my own media company and hopefully, yeah, treat my journalists as best as we can as a private, as a private venture. Mm. And, and how about for you, once you were wounded, was, was that a life-shifting moment? Did you change anything about the way you lived? I think the, the thing that's been, um, some people have sometimes asked me, how did the war change you? And I've never really known how to understand that because I don't feel the war changed me. I feel like the war made me. <laughs> in that it's experience that's so deeply woven into who I am that I, it's like, you know, how did your, how did your mother change you? Like she made you, yeah. you know, how did your brother change you? Like these, so it, it's, for me, it's that those experiences are foundational to who I am. I don't know how to say whether or not it did or did not uh, change me. I certainly would be some different version of myself had I not had those experiences, but I don't know who that person would be. It's certainly not writing fabulous books like this because mm -hmm. you, you, this is real lived experience. Yeah, it, 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 the way I, have view the world is obviously informed by by some of my experiences. Yes, I'm just uh, curious about also the collaborative approach uh, working with Admiral Stavides on this um, a, as well. Um, what was sort of the sparring like? Was this you know the coming together of of, of two minds uh, who of course worked uh, for, for the U.S. military? Uh, you know, what did he bring to the table uh, as co-author of this? And what, what were you delivering mm -hmm. to get to, of course, the final product here? Well, he and I have a friendship that predated the books. Um, he, he, we both went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is at Tufts, which is their school for international affairs. And so when he retired from the Navy, he had become the dean. He was not the dean when I was there, but we just sort of became friends as alums. And we actually, just by coincidence, had the same editor uh, at Penguin Press. And so he went to our shared editor with this idea, I want to write a novel you know, that would imagine this war. 
Uh, and then our editor was like, you know, he had written a number of books, but he'd never written a novel. And he's like, well, why don't you work with novelists? And like, aren't you and Elliot friends? He's like, well, yeah. And so we talked about, you know, what this book would look like. And we very much had a, a, a shared vision, which is sort of what I already explained of, you know, how we wanted the book to feel. And the way we did it was basically we, when we started the project, we said, well, let's see if we can write a chapter together. Because, you know, you never know if you're going to want to kill each other after trying to write one <laughs> chapter. And we basically outlined that first chapter, you know, in a lot of detail. Okay, this has happened. This is how that first incident will work. And then after a certain amount of outlining, I mean, someone, someone has to sit down at the, at the keyboard. And so, you know. I'm is that where the midshipmen come in? I'm wondering sort of who's actually tapping it out. I'm, tap I'm tapping it okay. out. And so I, no, I, like I said, like, we outline chapters. Then I'm like, let me take a crack at it. I write the chapter. I would hand it to him. He would go through the chapter and we kind of bounce them back and forth. I was like a story meeting. And then we're like, yeah, we feel good about this chapter. And then we do the next one. And that's how we, that's how we wrote the book. Um, we actually have been signed up to turn it into a trilogy. So there'll be a 2054, which deals with a civil war inside the United States and the theme uh, of biotechnology, kind of how cyber is featured in this book in 2074, which will be about the environment. So, um, so we've had a great and fun collaboration. I would just say, Jim, he's one of the most, when he was at the Fletcher School, he brought me on to be the writer in residence for a semester, and I asked him, well, what does this entail? And you know, the Admiral, he basically sent me a memo of my duties, and one of my duties was talk with the Admiral about books when he feels like it. So he's a, I mean, he's a very deeply, you know, deeply read guy, uh, reads tons of fiction, and so he brought his sensibility to it, and I, you know, I knew that sensibility before we started as well. Okay, so you've teased us now. So for those who've liked 2034, when can we expect 2054? Is this for next summer or? Uh, right now in the U.S. it's scheduled for the fall of 2023. But, you know, in, in terms of, of civil war, which you mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, January the 6th, the insurrection then, was the first time that the Confederate flag was flown uh, at, 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 at the U.S. Capitol. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the last time that it was flown anywhere significant uh, was during the, the U.S. Civil War. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? possibly going back that way? Well, I think the, um, I mean, it's interesting. So a friend of mine was making the point, like, you know, the, the United States is basically like a Trotsky estate. Like the United States, it's constantly in a state of revolution. You know, like we, you know, we have an election every two years in the U.S., and every single one is existential, and every single one seems to bring us to the brink of civil war, and then we don't quite do it. I think if there ever were to be something on, akin to the civil war that we saw in the 1860s, which I don't, I hope is not going to happen. It certainly wouldn't look like uh, the last civil war. Um, but you know, the, the you know the United States is a is and I think always will be a somewhat tumultuous and almost revolutionary society. That's what gives it its strength, but also can make it uh, you know make it fragile. Uh, Elliot, uh, we're going to continue the conversation as we said at the start of this. Uh, because uh, it's, it's amazing. So I'm sorry for our listeners uh, around the world. Uh, you're going to miss the Q&A session. There might be some highlights, maybe Georgina as well, uh, on, on Meet the Writers. Uh, potentially, we can maybe hear a little bit more what happens uh, when we go off air in a moment. Absolutely. Hopefully, Elliot, we can sit down and, uh, and ask you a few more questions and bring it to our wider listenership. But it's been absolutely wonderful to have you here uh, with us as we broadcast. And of course, our live audience will hear the rest of the conversation, which is coming up. Indeed. Sure. So everyone uh, stick around. Uh, but we're just... Uh, coming uh, to, the top, uh, to the top of the hour uh, here on Monocle 24. Georgina, really great uh, to have you uh, here. I hope you've enjoyed. I think you have, haven't you? I've had a great time. And I really thank you to everybody out there because meeting you all and speaking to everybody and, of course, to our wonderful authors uh, and to Thomas Gomez, whose brainchild this is, has been an absolute delight. So thank you so much. Indeed. Also, Elliot Ackerman, uh, Emma Nelson, thanks very much. Also to uh, Louise Doughty and, uh, and Tara Bernard, who are here as well. Uh, our producers today, uh, Desiree Bandley, uh, Emma Nelson back in London. Also, our studio manager, Ingstad, of course, has been Desiree uh, as well. Uh, and David Stevens back in London. I'm Tyler Brillet. Monocle on Sunday is going to be back next week. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>